0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, are we we ready? This is, if if you're a little tired and a little sleepy, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, there's going to be a ton of information that's going to be thrown at you, right? Um, But, but at the end, I'm going to give you a big picture summary of all the stuff that I, here's what it means, everything that I shared. If you get the summary, you're okay. So you could sleep till the end if you have to, uh, but 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 I can't really give you the summary unless I give you some of the reasons that I'm able to summarize. It. Does that make sense? So uh, I want to, I want to do that well. Um, so this is evidence for the Bible, part thirteen, and this is how we got our New Testament. Last week in the last message we talked about the first century sources, the New Testament texts themselves, which gives us a ton of reason to accept many many books that are in the Bible. We talked about that, uh, that Jesus is the standard for Christianity, that the Apostles were chosen and sent by him, that the teaching of the Apostles became the foundation of the church. This is all historically supported, and then the writings of those Apostles are all that's left of that authoritative teaching. And what we didn't get into too much, but what is true is that the Old Testament environment, supports the idea of there being this New Testament, and that's a whole theological thing that we're just not going to get into just because I can't get into everything for the sake of time. But the question we have now is how was this, these texts, these New Testament texts received in the in the later parts of the church? Not just in the first century, but in the second and the third and the fourth century in the councils. We're going to cover about gosh, 320 years 324 years of church history tonight. And we're going to survey through all this stuff to answer the question, how did we get our New Testament books? When were they ratified? When were they verified? What was the format? Was there these big wars and fights over it? Did, did, did a bunch of the Bible get lost and set aside and, and the new books get imported and put in their place? Did things like that happen? That sort of thing. So, um, we'll go, we'll start from really the end of the first century that's the end of the 0 through 99, that's the first century, up into the, the beginning of the 5th century, that's the 400s. That's what we're going to cover tonight. And what we'll see is this. Um, first off, I'm not trying to prove tonight that scripture is inspired of God. I fully believe it's inspired of God and it's, it's all of those qualities, but that's not what we're discussing. What we're talking about now is, did God preserve the scriptures? Can we look historically and say, yeah, we, we got what he gave us? It wasn't adultered. It wasn't demented or twisted or somehow, you know, edited into the point where it doesn't even mean the same thing anymore, that kind of thing. So we'll take this tour and we'll see this. Here's the conclusion from the beginning, that the, the scripture was received gradually. It was received over time. It was, it happened in an organic sense. There was no one council that said, here Christians, this is your scriptures. Us four bearded gentlemen tell you so. That, that never happened. Um, but the problem is that a lot of the critics, and in fact, I watched uh, just in researching this, I, I, I torture myself. Allison goes, why do you watch these things? I was watching the History Channel's "Banned from the Bible documentary where they interview, I mean, I'm familiar with some of the guys I interviewed. And I'm like, really? You're interviewing that guy? Um, they interview the most liberal out there skeptics. And then the interviewer pieces together everything these liberal out there skeptics say in the most liberal out there skeptical way they can and so it comes together and you're like wow there's so it's so much deception involved in this it's just an attack on the bible is what it is it's just an attack on the bible Um, and hopefully after tonight you'll be able to respond to some of these things or at least have a resource that's available that helps you but should we according the skeptics seem to think that we should expect universal total agreement where every christian in the in the in the early church, knew every book of the Bible and received every book of the Bible, like ten seconds after Jesus was crucified. Like the, this is this is sort of the expectation. But why would we expect that? These books were written gradually. They were written over time. They were written in different geographies, at different places, years apart. So we don't expect all of the church to be familiar with all of the New Testament books right away. But of course, if God's really in this thing, then we'll expect that the church is the 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 overall church is eventually going to be receiving all of these things and that's what we actually see in fact it takes about as long for the new testament canon to develop or be received by the church as it did for the old testament one to develop and we know that's verified and ratified through prophecy and other evidences so that that's that's encouraging it it, it kind of happened through the same process like a mirror thing so before i get into the the, the quotes from church fathers and apostolic fathers, all that kind of fun stuff. I want to first deal with the issue of apostolicity. That's a fun word. Lots of syllables there. And the primary issue for the books of whether we would receive them as scripture or not, was did an apostle write this or an associate of an apostle write this? Now, why is it okay if an associate writes it and not the apostle? Um, in the same sense that it's okay that somebody else records the death of Moses in Deuteronomy because they're an associate of his and so it still bears the stamp of his uh, affirmation on it. Um, in the in the same sense that, that many of the books of the Bible that may have been recorded they were recorded recorded events where the person recording them it's not necessarily a, about that guy but he's an associate of them or it's somehow closely related to them. The idea is that it doesn't have to be written by the apostle as much as it has to be apostolic, or if you're not familiar with that word, you might say apostolish, like that the idea is this, the, the, the thoughts and ideas and teachings that are in this book come back to an apostle. In the same sense, an apostle could write the words of Jesus, and you'd be like, well, Jesus didn't write them, and you're like, yeah, but they're Jesus's words, so of course they're valid, but... Let's look at a few of the New Testament books which were not written by Apostles or at least they're accused of not being written by Apostles because obviously we're going to receive Matthew written by Matthew the Apostle. But what about Mark? Who's Mark? Who's this Mark guy? I mean it talks about right at the end of the book you get a little, little snippet about who Mark is but Mark apparently was written based upon the testimony of Peter. And Mark knew Peter, traveled with Peter, and records Peter. In fact, very, very early tradition says that he got his info from Peter. We'll look more into this later. Justin Martyr calls it the memoirs of Peter. And they're, they refer to Mark as being apostolic. Even authors later who knew that Mark, not Peter, wrote the gospel. They call it the Apostles' Gospel because it, it comes back to his teaching. So um, Luke... Luke was also he was a, he was a companion of the apostles. Um, he's an interviewer of the apostles. We know that he traveled with the apostles and spent a lot of time with them. In fact, he tells you in Luke chapter one, like he's like I yeah I didn't experience all these things, but I interviewed the eyewitnesses and I wrote down their accounts. So it's apostolic. So it's apostolic. All all four of the gospels are actually repeatedly called of the apostles, even by the New Testament or the post New Testament writers. It said that they're of the apostles, even though those writers knew that the apostles hadn't necessarily written each word in all four. Hebrews is another interesting one. That's probably one of the ones that people like have the most questions about. Hebrews, we're not really sure who wrote Hebrews. And there's a debate on it. And most of the time when people have a debate, the debate on Hebrews, they're just, they've only heard one side of the debate. So they say a couple things they heard from the one person they heard talk about it. And then, but they're not even aware of the other side for the most part. Uh, But let's just say this. Let's suppose that, you know, Paul may have written Hebrews. Well, let's suppose for a second he didn't. It would still be apostolic. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it refers to its content as coming from the apostles. It appeals to the apostles. It appeals to the teaching of the apostles and refers to those contents as coming from the apostles. And it was seen by the early church as apostolic. So that this was not a, this was not a question for them. It's just that we don't know for sure who penned it. But the belief is that it's apostolic. There was a couple different theories. The majority of the early church writers did think it was Paul. The majority of them seemed, though, who spoke about it, thought it was Paul who wrote it. Um, the book of James, uh, James is apostolic. Acts attests to his role as a leader in the church. Acts 15 talks about how James was really, in a big way, in charge of the church in Jerusalem, or at least in, the, in lead of that particular council or event that happened in Acts 15. And so he writes, and he's a brother of Jesus, and he seems to be that apostolic nature. Um, and then Jude was also a brother of Jesus. He was with the apostles at Pentecost. You read about that in Acts two. He's there. He's he's right there at the very beginning of the church. His 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 mother and brothers were were absolutely believers after the resurrection. Certainly, the mother was before the the brothers after. And um, Jude, in particular, though we don't see him. He may have been in that leadership role, but we don't see it recorded in Acts. But what's interesting is in Jude, if you read through that very short one chapter book, he actually says that he is carrying forward apostolic teaching. So it's interesting how he, he actually affirms that. Now this mirrors Old Testament books, like I said, they were written in the same sort of fashion. What you couldn't have is you couldn't have somebody come 500 years after Moses and then write all about Moses. What you could have was Joshua. Joshua the companion and inheritor of Moses's ministry, you could have him write about Moses. That would be acceptable. Um, So now let's talk about acceptance by the church in general. Let's shift gears and we'll talk about, we're going to take our little survey through history (coughs) and we'll look at how some people, individuals and groups um, talked about the New Testament, how they gradually accepted all of the books of the New Testament. Then we'll shift gears again and we'll look at councils where it was a gathering of leaders in the church to get together and make some kind of proclamation. But that didn't happen for 300 years. So first we need to look at the individuals. Uh, Clement of Rome, uh, well, in First Clement, and this, this is written by the, the leadership, the bishops or leadership that's in Rome. There was a plurality of elders in Rome. It, he wasn't a pope. That's a whole different issue to talk about some other time. But let me read to you what he wrote. He says this in, in 42... 1st Clement 42 verse 1 and 2. It says, The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ was sent from God. The Christ therefore is from God and the apostles from Christ. Carrying the the authority of Christ to the apostles and then receiving this gospel, the gospel, which is what we have written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as from God. He actually quotes from Matthew and Luke. So here in 95 AD, this letter is quoting as like with the style of how they quote scripture, is quoting Matthew and Luke. That's pretty cool. Talks about 1 Corinthians, and says that 1 Corinthians, because 1 Clement's written to Corinth, and he says that 1 Corinthians was an apostolic epistle of Paul, and quote, that Paul wrote it, in the spirit. Right? This is the pneuma word, this special word where we read how all scripture is God-breathed, is, is, is inspired of God, and it, it here affirms that First Corinthians was written in the Spirit. Now, do you suppose if, if in in Rome at the time they think, well, First Corinthians was written in the Spirit, but Galatians wasn't? No, probably not. This is this is probably a general attitude towards Paul's epistles, a general attitude towards the gospel, towards the the four gospels that they they have the authority of Christ and they're written in the Spirit. First um, Clement uses Romans, uses Galatians, uses Philippians, and obviously the authors of 1st Clement, they knew the book of Hebrews and they knew it well because they, it's, it's like you're reading pieces of Hebrews as you read through this, this book. And yeah, you can read these works. You can just go look up 1st Clement and check it out. It's all the stuff's available online for free. There's no copyright on stuff from uh, 1,900 and whatever years ago. <laughs> so that's the good news. Um, then there's uh, about five years later, about 100 AD, we have something called a Didache. Now the Didache, it just means teachings. And the idea of the Didache was that it was a gathering of the teachings of the apostles. Now, we don't, necess- we don't look at this as being scripture, it's, but it's a book from that ancient time in the, in the early church, the fairly early church, the generation right after the apostles. In fact, um, it's quite possible that John was still alive while the Didache was written. He seems, in the Didache, they seem to call Matthew scripture, and they have a curse pronounced like from Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy, it's really interesting, the theology behind this, but the Deuteronomy curse upon those who change the written word is pronounced on those who change the gospel. The implication is the gospel is a written word that you, that you don't you dare change. And then the Deuteronomy curse, which is applied to scripture, Old Testament scripture, is applied now to this. So the parallel is really, really interesting. And this is very early on. I mean, this is hundreds of years before councils take place. Um, Constantine is, is not... His mom's 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 mom is not even an apple in the eye or whatever that phrase is. (laughs) They're not knee-high to a grasshopper's eye of apple or anything. Um, Then about 10 years later, the bishop of Antioch, Ignatius. Now, Ignatius is on his way to be martyred and he starts writing some letters. Um, Now, in these letters, he calls the Gospels Scripture. Now, this is really important because that word Scripture implies script. It's a graphe in the greek it means something written but when you're saying it in this context you're saying it's scripture not it's written down but rather it's scripture as in authoritative t- teachings from god that's what this is meant by this term this term scripture so he calls the gospels plural scripture he spoke of numerous letters from paul specifically in one ten, this particular writer, he knew 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and 1 and 2 Timothy. And he also seems to know, seems to know, because there's, there's a lot of times where they quote things and it's like an allusion and you're like, oh, that had to come from this book. That had to, but it's not an exact quote necessarily. So he seems to know Romans, Philippians, and Galatians. So he seems to be familiar with a lot of the New Testament that we have. Does this mean he didn't know, say, Revelation? Well, no. I mean, I don't quote Revelation every time I put out a tweet necessarily. It doesn't mean I don't know it. But he definitely knew these ones. Then we have a guy named Marcion who comes up. Marcion shows up, <coughs> actually shows up a little while later. Um, Marcion, he's interesting because he, he comes in and he's an anti-Semite, right? He, he just, he hates the Jews and he hates the Jewishness of Christianity. So Marcion comes in, he's, he's, he's a heretic, He decides to throw out three of the Gospels and keep only Luke. Then he takes Luke and busts out his pair of scissors and he chops up Luke and highly edits Luke to take out the Jewishness of Luke. He keeps Paul's epistles but he ditches Hebrews because it's too Jewish. It's far too Jewish. So he ditches that and so he's got Luke and Paul and this is his canon. That's all he has. And for a long time in the church, if you wrote about anything, you wrote about how wrong Marcion was. And this is very encouraging to see that what was there from the church? A unanimous response to him as a heretic. It wasn't like, well, that's your Christianity. That's your Christianity. Rather, everyone's like, dude, you're nuts. You are out there. You're bonkers. We don't don't follow that kind of stuff. Um, Now, uh, moving forward just a little bit. So we have Polycarp. And this guy, he's a bishop of Smyrna. And he writes a letter to Philippi about 110 AD. Think of how early we are. How early we are are still. You can read this letter. I did. It's neat to just read this stuff, you know. Um, You can read this letter. Um, Polycarp's a disciple of John, or or so it is thought. He he was an actual disciple of John. He sat under John. He knew John. We have references from Irenaeus and stuff saying that Polycarp knew John. He quotes Ephesians. And he calls Ephesians sacred scripture. Sacred scripture. He calls it that. What does this imply? It was sacred scripture. And again, these guys, they're not even making a case for it. They're not like, oh, did you know that Ephesians is sacred scripture? It is. He just quotes, it's just assumed. He quotes it along with, along with the Old Testament, calls them sacred scriptures and quotes both of them. So he puts it right up there parallel with the Old Testament. He also alludes to other epistles of Paul, like uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy. He also quotes from Matthew. He also quotes from Luke. He quotes from Acts. He quotes from 1 Peter and 1 John. You're like, he sure quotes a lot. And he does. In fact, a lot of his letter is just constant quotes sort of strung together from different places in the New Testament and, and other places, Old Testament as well. Really neat stuff. Um, now, if he, if, think about this, if Polycarp, the bishop of the church in Smyrna, if, um, although there may have been other bishops there, but he was one of them. If he views Ephesians as sacred scripture, do you suppose he views the rest of Paul's writings as less than sacred scripture? Probably not. Do you suppose he views the other apostles' writings as less than scripture? Probably not. You you see an environment that makes total sense to a Christian. You're like, yeah, of course. Of course you would think this, here in 110 AD, who is a, a man who knew John. Then we get to Papias. Papias in around 125 AD. This was the bishop of Hierapolis. According to Irenaeus, he was a friend of Polycarp and he wasn't a disciple of John, but Papias had sat under John. He'd at some point in his life had heard John speak. He'd heard John communicate and give a a message or something like that. Um, now he actually quotes John the Apostle in a passage. Let me read it to you, okay? This is what he says. This is from 125. This is so neat to me. It's exciting that we get to like read this stuff they wrote from so long ago. He says, The elder used to say, that's if you if you read second and third John, you're like, the elder? Hey, you know, because that's how he ad- addresses himself. The elder used to say, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. And he's carrying a tradition from 125 about about, uh, Mark writing from Peter. And so it's looked at as, again, the memoirs of Peter. Um, Then we get to 130. Skipping forward a few years, about 130 approximately, we have the Epistle of Barnabas. In the Epistle of Barnabas, it says, this is a Christian writing, it says, It is written, many are called, but few are chosen. Notice the phrase, it is written. You typically use to introduce scripture. I don't say, it is written, license number B017, you know, like you don't just say this of random things. This says, it is written, many are called, but few are chosen. Does that sound familiar? These are Jesus's words from Matthew 22, verse 14, and it's referred to as it is written. So again, we just have more affirmation. What we don't have here is half of these guys denying the Gospels are inspired and the other half agreeing they are. We just have these constant little affirmations and confirmations without the denials. And then when you get one guy like Marcion who denies it, everyone like attacks him like a bunch of pit bulls. So, then you have a book called The Shepherd of Hermas um, that also quotes a lot of scripture. Um, <clears throat> probably not have time to get into too much of it, but let me tell you this. The Apostolic Fathers that are around this time, so right, 1st century and into the beginning, the first half of the 2nd century, so that's like, you know, up until 150 AD. These guys, these, we call these the Apostolic Fathers, they quote all the time. In their letters, they constantly, constantly quote New Testament passages, Old Testament passages, and they even quote other books, apocryphal books, books that we don't consider part of the scripture. Now, just quoting a book doesn't make it scripture. but but the amount of times that they quote these things, that's what's interesting. If you pull all their quotes together, they quote the New Testament core, the Gospel and the Apostles, and uh, and Paul in particular. They quote them 50 times more than they quote the Old Testament. They quote the New Testament books 50 times more than the Old. Then the peripheral books, which we'll, which we'll get into more, like uh, Hebrews and Revelation and 2nd and 3rd John and 2nd Peter, these books that were like Slower to be received by the whole church Those books they quote a lot and then the apocryphal books they quote hardly at all So that's 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 the way it is. it's like they quote these ones a ton They were very popular well-known then there's the quote these ones a lot But not as much as these others and then you have the books that aren't in our New Testament Which they quote hardly at all there's like one reference to something scattered out here and there occasionally So then we get to 150 and there's a guy named Justin Martyr and he, his, his last name's not Martyr. He was a martyr. He was martyred and so he got given the name Justin Martyr. He was an early Christian apologist. So I, I like that. That's exciting. He wrote some stuff like the dialogues of Trifo, which is his conversations with a Jewish man. And he's debating and giving a defense for like, is Jesus really prophesied in the Old Testament? And he's like answering all these accusations from a Jewish perspective against Christianity and he's basically making the case for Christianity. So it's pretty neat stuff to look into and read. An early apologist. Um, He calls the Gospels, this is the guy that calls the Gospels, the quote memoirs of the Apostles or he just calls them the memoirs. The The memoirs. Now he again, he describes them as quote drawn up by the Apostles and those who followed them. So he knows the Gospels were written by, in this case, two apostles and two Luke. You could consider Luke an apostle and then Mark, uh, who followed Peter. And he says, drawn up by the apostles. And so he knows that like Mark wrote Mark and not Peter. But he still calls it a memoir of who? The apostles. So it's still seen as apostolic. That's not, that's not a problem. He also quotes most of Paul's epistles. He quotes 1 Peter and he quotes the book of Revelation. And he refers to it as being John the Apostle's work, that John the Apostle wrote Revelation. Because some people nowadays debate who, which John? Which John? And, uh, but the early church seemed to think John the Apostle wrote, wrote this book. Then there's a guy named Tatian. In 170, in 170 AD, Tatian, what he did was, uh, he had an idea to make a harmony of the Gospels, to bring together these four into one harmonized work, one book. And he did, and he called it the diatessaron, the diatessaron, fancy schmancy, and that's Latin, and it means through the four, through the four. Um, he only used, interestingly enough, in his, I'm going to harmonize everything we have about Jesus. There's, there were other gospels around to so the gospel of, of, well, you name it. There was a couple different ones around, not a whole lot at the time. There was others that were written later, but there were others around. He didn't quote from any of those. He only used Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wouldn't use any of these other supposed lost gospels, which we'll get into next week. We'll get into that stuff next week. That'll be really interesting. I'm going to quote to you some of the weird stuff, like a giant talking cross that we read about in some of those false, <laughs> false works. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. <coughs> Jesus kills people when he gets mad as well, when he's five years old, and that, that's interesting. There. But we'll get there next week. I don't want to get ahead of myself. A little bait. It's really trippy stuff. Um... So in the Diatessalon, it never really got traction in the church. People were like, okay, cool, but they still read, you know, the Gospels. They still read their Gospels themselves. But it's interesting that he only used those four to make his through the four. There's only four Gospels is the point. There's only really these four. There's no others. <clears throat> then there's what we have, our first canonical list in history so far that we've discovered. It's called the Muratorian Fragment. The Muratorian Fragment is a, is a piece of script where there is... Uh, it's 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 damaged. We don't have the whole thing. <clears throat> we don't have the, the very beginning. We don't have the end, but we have the middle, and it is a rather detailed list of what is scripture. Um, how it refers to it is like these are the things that we receive. So speaking of <clears throat> the the Christians in the area, wherever the, wherever they were, you know that's these are, as us as Christians we receive these books. These are the ones that we know of that are scripture. So it doesn't say these and no more, that kind of thing. It's just like this is what we receive. It has a really detailed list and it gives even reasons on certain ones. Um, It mentions the four Gospels, it mentions Acts, it mentions a bunch of Paul's letters, it mentions the book of Revelation, and has a really interesting statement on the book of Revelation. It says, we received the Apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation. And it says, but some of us don't want it read in church. Isn't that interesting? We receive it, but some people don't want it read in church. We'll, we'll find out a little bit later, we'll get there, that the book of Revelation became a point of contention. There was a couple of groups that used it to preach uh, cults. They, they, would, they would twist the statements in Revelation and talk about like doomsday this and that, and then they would preach cults, not unlike today, not unlike today. So some of them were like, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's the Apostle wrote it and all that, but like, can we not like make a point of reading it in church because, you know, those weirdos? The Muratorian Fragment excludes a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. There's a couple books that, that some people think should have been scripture. Some people, I, I really only mean here, liberals who who hate the canon and, and, and want to undermine our faith. I'm, it's just, I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be weird, but they think that The Shepherd of Hermas, The Epistle of Barnabas, that these books maybe should have been scripture. But um, the church as a whole never thought these were scripture, never did. And this passage says they're not, but... Uh, that Shepherd of Hermas, in particular, this book was not scripture. But then it says this, it says, because the Shepherd of Hermas was written, quote, in our time. Now in 175, Miratorian fragment, right? 175, it says the Shepherd of Hermas can't be scripture because it was written in our time. See, the canons close. You don't get to add, there's apostolic books and and, and teaching and that's it. That doesn't continue. There aren't new, brand new apostles of Jesus who get to write new scripture. That's, it's over. That's the church's understanding. We were given this once and for all, the, the faith. Um, it also talks about um, uh, the fact that the Shepherd of Hermas was written by the brother of a bishop that was, that was in Rome. And so, he, it seems like there might have been a little pressure to, oh yeah, it's okay because we respect these people and so like, it's okay, their book's all right kind of thing. But it was not seen as scripture. Then in 180 AD, we get a guy named Irenaeus. Are you writing all these names down? Remembering the dates? Good. I'm trying to go chronologically so you can see the flow. Irenaeus said that there were four Gospels and only four Gospels. And now this is where we get him, uh, someone saying there are only four. Because now at this point in history, we're starting to get these false Gospels being written by groups that want to write their own Gospel to draw people away to themselves, start a cult, the Gnostics, and things like that that we hear about. So Irenaeus is like, there are only four Gospels, and he has this really interesting statement he makes about how, like, there's four winds, and four pillars, and four, and he uses this numerical thing, which is interesting. I don't think it's a huge apologetic argument, but here's the point. There's four, and only four. Now, modern-day people who say, oh, lost books of the Bible, they want to act like there were more, and that only in the 300s, at the Council of Nicaea, of all places, which was not about the Bible... That was about the the humanity of Christ, actually more so than his deity. But <clears throat> anyway, we'll talk about that later. And the uh, they want to say that at this point Constantine shows up and he picks which books are put in the Bible, and this is just utter folly. It's just it's 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 lies and deception. And they they people who propagate this need to repent. Need to repent. It's just it's utterly uh, fallacious and about such an important topic. So it goes on, um, uh, Irenaeus, he, he says this, let me quote to you from him. He says, we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. And so, I mean, that's, that's some high theology right there. Then there's a, a, a grouping, uh, since we're doing chronological here, in, in a 200, about 200, there was a, a grouping of, we discovered a, a manuscript called P46. They, this is Papyrus 46, that's how they label them, they're, just, they're very impersonal. I would have called it like Joe or something. But P46 comes along, <coughs> and P46 is a grouping of Christian texts. What they've done is they've gathered together letters from Paul, and they've put them all into one grouping of texts. And there are a list of Paul's epistles and here's the epistles and here's the order that they're listed in. They're Not just a list, rather, it's actually here's the epistle like written out in full. It's Romans, it has Romans, and it actually starts because we don't have the first part of it, it's disintegrated. So, it starts, it has Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, we don't have the ending of this thing, we don't have the last pages, but based on the number of pages these things have, it's thought that they couldn't fit the pastoral epistles once you get past these, if it was a collection of all of Paul's writings. But what's interesting is, in P46, as the authors is writing P46, he starts to, towards the end, cram the letters together closer and closer. Like he's trying to fit more stuff. And so it could be that he was like, I'm running out of space. And there was more than enough space to, to fit Paul's letters minus the pastoral epistles. But if he wanted to put First and Second Timothy and Titus in there, he would have had to try to cram And then that was not uncommon then to add a few pages at the end to just staple them on, so to speak. (laughs) It's like a staples stapler. And then then you could have all the pastoral epistles. So they could have been in there is the point. New Testament scholar James Dunn, he wrote the following. The de facto canon of Jesus and Paul, gospel and epistle, was already functioning with effect within the first 30 years of Christianity's existence. Um, And this is seen by the fact that we see these guys from all over in, in great agreement over the Gospels and Paul, the Gospels and Paul, the Gospels and Paul. They're the most attested to. Some of the other works we don't see attested to as much, not denied, we just don't see them attested to as much. Possibly because like Jude, I mean have you read Jude? Okay, did read it again. I mean now read it now. I'm going to read it again. It's very short. It's very short. It's also apocalyptic. And these these guys didn't see as much use for apocalyptic stuff as they're writing letters to each other, encouraging them to stay steadfast in the faith. So we see things like Second and Third John. Well, we see First John attested more than Second and Third John, but Second and Third John are extremely short. Um, uh, That's so it's understandable why you wouldn't see some of these things attested. I mean, of course you'd see Luke. Look how massive this thing is. You're going to see that quoted more. (coughs) Pardon me. It's also really cool to know the church's attitude towards forgeries. The early Christians were really serious about getting just the, the, the right works. They were very, very vigorous about this. There's a guy that wrote a book called uh, Third Corinthians. And uh, Paul alludes to letters. He may have written another letter to Corinthians. So later a guy actually forged one called Third Corinthians. Now the church found out about this and they interviewed him and they were like, what is this?" He says, well, Because I love Paul so much, I just love Paul so much, so I wanted to write this in his honor. Yeah, right, you liar, you know. (laughs) Here's the church's response. Get out. They kick him out of the church. They excommunicate him out of the fellowship over this issue. Because it's a huge, huge issue to fake letters in the names of the apostles. It mattered more to the early church than it does to modern scholars that these were written by apostles or were apostolish. So to speak, <laughs> that was a big important deal to them. Um, even guys like Bart Ehrman, who's he's got to be, he's the uber skeptic. All this guy does is he writes, he writes a book about how the Bible's false in one way, then he attacks it from a different direction. Then he writes another book from a different direction. He's just getting rich off the back of skepticism. But um, it's like what Stephen Hawking does about trying to prove that that uh, the universe doesn't require God to exist. So. He just writes a book and then disagrees with his old book and writes a new one and disagrees with that and writes a new one. He's like, I got to find a theory to prove it's not true. So here we are. We're in 200, about 200 AD. So not that long ago. Steve, you remember that? Remember those good old days? (laughs) TV was just black and white back then. Um, And there's a guy named Clement Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria. He quoted all of the New Testament except for 2 Timothy, Philemon, Second and Third John, 2 Peter, and James. So 22 of the 27 books he actually quotes. This is just one guy in his letters and he's familiar with this much of the New Testament. Could you quote 25 of the New Testament or 22 of the New Testament books like that? You just go for it, man. Write a letter and just quote them all. He's obviously very familiar. Um, now at his time, for sure by his time, by Clement's time, the phrase New Covenant, or the way we put it nowadays, New Testament, was firmly established as the official title of the church's scriptures. The New Testament. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, this name didn't start in 200. It was firmly established by them, but it starts actually in the New Testament itself when they say, Paul says, we're ministers of the New Covenant. And then that came to be the title of the scriptures. And that's how we carry that down still today. It's that old, that tradition. In 235, Origen, Origen says that all four gospels alone are unquestionable in the church of God under heaven. So Origen's saying these four no more. That's what he's saying. These four no more. These alone are unquestionable um, in the church of God under heaven. When he says under heaven, he's saying throughout all of Christendom, there is no other widely accepted, believed, you know, gospel. That's not the way it is. In fact, he also writes and says, <coughs> "Pardon me, we approve nothing else but what the, but that which the church approves, and that capital C, that's, that means worldwide, that is four gospels only as proper to be received. Only as proper to be received. Now, he talked about the book of Hebrews. Origin did. He wasn't certain who wrote it, but the reason why he wasn't certain, he realized the tradition was Peter, or Paul wrote it, but he wasn't sure and his issue was linguistics. It's interesting, nowadays that's the same reason why people aren't sure if Paul wrote Hebrews. They say linguistics. The language doesn't sound like Paul. And, and then this, the problem with the, the linguistics issue is unless you're a linguist, you don't understand the argument. Like I don't, what do you mean by that? You know, like I mean I have to read an awful lot of stuff to really understand this argument about whether it was Paul or not. Uh, we don't need it to be Paul to be scripture. Um, the their church received it as apostolic. But he did acknowledge that tradition attributed it to Paul. Also, he said this. He said that though he he thought Paul probably hadn't penned it himself, he claims it's the thoughts of Paul. And that it's apostolic. So he he thought the linguistics didn't sound like the way Paul writes in his letters, but that the theology sounded exactly like Paul. You know, that was interesting, uh, an interesting comment. On 2nd and 3rd John, He thought John may have written them, but he acknowledged that the church as a whole wasn't resolved on the issue. Second and third John. John's the author, but the church, I believe he's the author, but the church as a whole is not fully resolved on this issue. Notice Origen doesn't feel he has the right to speak for the whole church. He only feels he has the right to acknowledge what he knows the church is already saying. So when he says the church is agreed on the Gospels, the church really is. He's not telling them, you're agreed, get over it. Nobody felt like they could control what was canon. They felt like they had to just look at the church and say, what What, what did we receive from God? That was the question, the same question we have today. Um, he also said that revelation was accepted and from John. Um, <clears throat> and he also accepted the book of Jude. And so these are some of those books that you're wondering about. Now this is, this is of course in 235 about. Now, skipping forward a while, <clears throat> we get to the years about 320-330 when a guy named Eusebius is writing. Eusebius was the first historian of the Christian church. He was the first Christian historian to, to really lay these things out. And he says that, <clears throat> now I'm going to say this twice because you'll have to hear it twice. He says 22 of the books of our New Testament are recognized by the whole church. Five of them are disputed. That's James, Jude, 2 Peter, Second and 3 John. And then he has a list of books that are denied. And that, of course, is uh, they're all apocryphal books. None of them are from the scriptures. None of them are in our New Testament. He's not telling us what we should approve. He's, he's observing what the church does. 22 are re- recognized by the church as a whole, five are disputed. What, the question is what does that mean, disputed? It means that, that much of the church is recognizing it, some of the church is not in agreement. And so until the church figures this out, I'll just put it down as a disputed book. Now, when people quote Eusebius on this stuff, they tend to imply that disputed means disbelieved or that the church generally didn't receive these books, but that's not the case. It's more like, no, these books will not stop. They keep forcing themselves upon the church, but we're not all in agreement. There's some good reasons why they were disputed, um, and, it, and it seems like it was mostly centered on questions of authorship. It's like the, the younger church seems to be more convinced of the authorship than, the, than now they're later. They're a little further removed, so they're not sure. Um, And so they're waiting for that to be resolved. Then there's a guy named Cyril of Jerusalem. Cyril of Jerusalem, he included 26 of the 27 books of our New Testament as Scripture. Now, he didn't deny Revelation was Scripture. He never said that. Revelation is not Scripture. He just didn't talk about it. He just didn't mention it. Why? Uh, Some people think he was unsure of its authorship, but others think that it was related to this cult called the Montanists. They were from Montana. Right. Uh, the Montanists, they were, the, one of the, the leader of the Montanists was this guy who, he, he had fresh revelation he would get from God and he would go into a fit and he like shaking and like this kind of crazy fit and then he would have like a revelation from God and he had some ladies that would follow him. They would do the same thing. They would go into this fit and one of the things that this group, there were heretics and false teachers and one of the things that they did was they took revelation and they twisted the meanings of Revelation and they used it to say that in um, in Phrygia that, that in this particular area Jesus was about to come back and start a new Jerusalem right here. And so this was causing some problems <laughs> as you can imagine as they're out there proclaiming it's the end times and I mean if you want to be a successful cult at least for a short period of time you, you tell everyone that you know when Jesus is coming back and where and how and then that'll scare at least a few people into following you. Never mind Jesus's words where he says no you don't know. <laughs> As I, as I paraphrase, <laughs> um, no man knows the day or the hour. <clears throat> but uh, it seems that in that area of the church that they started to, to have questions about Revelation because it's like, this, is, this book's causing problems, is their opinion. Or maybe it should be better said, people are causing problems, they're using this book. We don't really know exactly what to do with it. We know it speaks to the whole church, but after we get past the letters to the seven churches, there's a lot of stuff in there that these people are twisting and using to, to lead people astray. So that may have been why he lists 26 books and then just remains silent on the book of Revelation. Just doesn't say anything about it. But he doesn't deny it. Um, and and so it may have been a, a lack of understanding of Revelation that was causing this trouble. But then, now we get to a, a period of time um, <clears throat> where we're actually, and I've kind of already sort of launched into it, where we're getting to councils. We're getting to where people come and they speak and they're, and they're saying like, hey, we're gathering together with a group of bishops from different areas in the church, at least in our area. And we're saying, here's what we receive as scripture. So I'm going to do a very quick survey of these councils so you can see. Now we're in the 300s. It's three, uh, notice I didn't mention Nicaea because Nicaea is not really part of this issue. Um, the Council of Nicaea, Dan Brown says, this is where Constantine, it wasn't even about, um, if someone says Nicaea and they mention how the Bible was formed and made it Nicaea, it just proves that they get their information from like Hollywood movies and they haven't researched any of it. So, what I'd encourage you to do is be very cautious and gracious, of course, but be be very slow because it's like someone who has fully formed theories about things they have no clue about, you know? And so, it can be very difficult to kind of bring them out of the clouds and down to reality, but… Um, So there was a synod, a synod in Laodicea. Now we have like an actual church gathering of leaders. And they, they give 26 books of our New Testament. Remember, there's 27 total. They give 26. They, and they give them by name, all the same books, exact same books. But they don't mention Revelation. Again, it's just not mentioned at all. Then um, Athanasius, Athanasius, sorry, I need to drink something. (laughs) <laughs> other than coffee. Um, Athanasius, in 367, he he gives out his, uh, what's called a festal letter, and he sends it out to, to everyone, and he includes all 27 books, including Revelation. Including Revelation. But this is the first time this phrase is added to one of these canon lists. He says, let no one add to these, let nothing be taken away. Let no one add, let nothing be taken away. There's bookends now. It's not like, these are for sure scripture, We're still thinking about this, you know, like some people over there haven't agreed. So we don't want to speak for the whole church because those people haven't fully agreed yet. But Athanasius, he says, no, this is it. This is it. So then in 390, that was 367. In 390, Gregory of Nazianzus, (laughs) oh, can't you think of better city names? He lists all 27 books of our New Testament. Then there's the African canons where they gather together for two councils in 393 and 419 and they list all 27 books of our New Testament canon. Jerome in 394, he lists all 27 books of our New Testament canon. Augustine in 395, he lists all 27 books of our New Testament canon. In the Carthage Synod of 397, can you guess? All 27 books of our New Testament canon. And then uh, again in 419, then uh, all 27 again. So we've got, <clears throat> we've got this, basically what I've just done a survey of, if I can summarize everything is, we know um, the church didn't start by excluding books. They started by just recognizing books they were aware of. Right? And, and individuals, different people, because it wasn't like the church spoke with one voice at once, because they didn't. They're scattered, they're persecuted, they're all over the place. There isn't this, there's no Pope in Rome, speaking for the whole church, none of that kind of stuff. So, oh, we receive the Gospels. We receive the Epistles of Paul, for sure. And then we start hearing from various people, other books of our New Testament. So what we have is, even from a skeptical perspective, we have pretty much universal agreements on the core of our New Testament, the vast majority of the books. The Gospels, the, the 13 Epistles of Paul, And then we have references that are that are including these other books and and that inclusion spreads throughout the whole church eventually. We don't have in at any point where the church widespread denies any of the books of our New Testament. We don't have any point where the church widespread embraces other books and calls them New Testament or or this is the Word of God. What we have is growing solid pretty much universal agreement over the books of our New Testament that we have today. Does that make sense? I mean, I just hope that 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 can simplify it. Let me, let me put it another way. There is a difference between functional and official. What often the skeptics focus on is, when was the canon official? And I would say the canon was official in the mind of God the second it was written. And as each book was written, it was officially added (laughs) because this is not the mind of man. We do not make it canon, we do not make it scripture, God does. So the question we're asking here is when was it functioning as Scripture? And it functioned as Scripture very early on and it continues to, to, to be embraced these different books. They were like Revelation would have been written much later than Paul writing 1st Corinthians. That would have been years and years later. So it's not going to be received at the same time by the same people in the same place. So these are this is all reasonable and understood. By the mid-second century, the mid-100s, we have the Gospel and Paul pretty much universally accepted and the others are regionally and gradually accepted and that's the history of our canon. Let me give it to you another way because I, I, I just thought what I really need to do is make sure I summarize these things a couple ways because this is where the skeptics get you. What they do is they quote selected passages from the same people I quoted but they, they only quote the disagreements. They don't quote the agreement and so you get a, a, a twisted view of history based on that. So this is what the liberal unbelieving scholars always leave out in their renditions of history. There were books that were never disputed. Ever. Ever. The four Gospels, Acts, Paul's ten letters, 1st John, and 1st Peter. Never disputed. Never. Not, 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 not just not rejected, not even disputed. Then there were books that were debated but finally accepted Hebrews, James, 2nd Peter, Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, Revelation, and then the pastoral epistles. Some people, they, they argue, they discussed, they weighed, they were like, is, is this really from Paul? Should we really accept it? Does the church over there accept it? Like there was debates and discussions. That is our entire New Testament. Then there's books that were never, ever accepted, though they some of them were very popular in the, in the early church for the first few hundred years. First Clement, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Letters of Polycarp to Philippi, Gospel of Thomas, Ignatius' Letters, and the Letter letter of Barnabas. These letters were enjoyed, they were loved, they were sometimes, they were copied and stuff like that, but they were never accepted as part of Scripture. The Church never accepted and embraced them. Then we have books that were holy and completely rejected, we'll talk about these next week, that were rejected by the Church. I'm so excited to get into these things. They're just, they're so stupid, it's great. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's like watching a car wreck. It's just really fun. I'm just kidding. That's not fun. Um, books wholly rejected. Well, if there's nobody in the car. Or those funny cars. What do they call them? You know where they... So, there's books that were wholly... Speaking of train wreck. My whole study just train wrecked. Um, they were wholly rejected. The Gospel of Mary... The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Philip, the Acts of Paul, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, etc., etc. These books were were rejected, they were never received by the church in any way, not even as like, let's all just read it, you know. Now let me show you the true colors of the skeptics who claim to just be scholars. Oh, we're scholars, but they're unbelieving scholars and of course this affects your scholarship. Because you won't come to conclusions or even allow conclusions that endorse uh, Christianity. Here's the true colors. Which text do you think modern revisionists and modern skeptics and scholars, they present as rediscoveries of the original Bible? Do you suppose it's the useful books that were never received as scripture, but were read a lot and copied a lot? Or do you suppose it's the rejected books that were always rejected by the church as a whole? It's the rejected books that were always rejected by the church as a whole. These are the ones the scholars are like, the Gospel of Thomas. Well, that, that, maybe that should have been in the scripture, yet the church never thought so. Why would you say this? You're just attacking the Bible in the name of, of scholarship. There was never a time in history where some group or church authority stood up and they ripped pieces out of the Bible and put new pieces in and said, this is how it is, now you have to deal with it. That never happened. The things and the people and the places and the events that I read to you today are spread all over the known world of the time. It's spread out. It's organic. It just happened naturally. That was the history. These really were the books received by the church. And I think that if you started this discussion by coming in here going, you know, I find this interesting, but I just believe the Bible. Like I got saved. I just trusted that this was the right New Testament. I just thought... I don't think God would give us the Bible and then fail to preserve it for us. I just don't think He would do that. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you're in great shape because guess what? You ended where you started, <laughs> and that was my perspective. You know, ahead of time was like, well, I, I want to be unbiased as much as I can. There's nobody who's truly unbiased. No such thing. But I'll try to be, deal honestly with the, the, the passages and the ideas and the things. But I have a hard time believing that if the Bible's from God, that He would let it get lost. And let books that don't belong in there just find their way in there. I mean, if God's truly in this, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. So, like Jesus said, my words will never pass away. Like the scripture says, that God would preserve his word from this generation forward until forever. And it seems to be the case. <laughs> it seems to be the case. So, next week we'll get into those uh, those fun books that, um, that many scholars and uh, like the Oh, I'll get into it all next week. I'll talk to. I've talked your ears off enough for tonight. So let's pray. And then um, I'll take any questions you guys have and answer them to the best of my ability. Um, Father, we just thank you so much uh, because uh, though we don't see it's a perfect history of everybody universally accepting all of the texts right away, we do see it is a history of the church gradually and methodically just bringing in all of the, all of the New Testament. And uh, though there were... Uh, Maybe times of disagreement, when when people highlight those disagreements, Lord, it, it ends up misrepresenting the truth. So it's so encouraging to get in there and look at it and see that you preserved your word. So just thank you, Father. Thank you that we can see that. I mean, your hand is working through history, and uh, and we trust that. Thank you for your holy word. Let us treat every book as we ought, as as the Scripture, as the inspired, infallible Word of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.